Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. I really hope that you enjoy this week's episode and the stories that we have in store for you. Let us begin and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. 23 years ago, my babysitter vanished. I still get chills when I think about what happened. Written by Lighting Nations. My babysitter disappeared in the summer of 99, although sometimes it doesn't feel all that long ago. Like when I wake up from the nightmares where I'm caressing her soft blonde hair. Her name was Michelle Dunbar, and for those first few days, everybody figured she had run off with her boyfriend. We lived in a quiet neighborhood after all. Stuff like that just didn't happen here. The three of us set off that morning. There was me, my twin sister Evelyn, and her cousin Georgia. Georgia lived right across the street, which meant in those summer months she landed in our doorstep every day at 8am, and she didn't leave until her mom called her in for supper. After a few rounds of hide-and-go-seek in our back garden, Georgia said, I'm bored, let's go to the park. The sky was the color of mackerel, Miley's favorite food. You just knew that it could start raining at any second. I said, Nah, we'll get soaked. No, we won't, she replied matter-of-factly, unlike she could control the weather. It will. We should play Mario Kart instead. Let's put it to a vote. Immediately, I groaned. A vote essentially meant girls versus boys, and since the two of them were closer with each other than to me... In fact, people usually assumed they were twins on account of their matching brown hair and green eyes. Like always, the two of them won through a sheer numbers advantage. Georgia stuck out her tongue. You lose, Charlie. From our house, we crossed the street and squeezed through a fence surrounding the nursing home. You needed to move fast, otherwise the elderly residents came out to shake their walkers and yell. After that... We circled three empty football pitches, followed a short trail through the woods into voila. There was a 12-foot-high fence around the park, with a front and rear gate, both of which made this horrible line of metal against metal as they opened. The area was divided into two sections, one for younger kids, with swings you couldn't fall out of and tube slides, and one for kids our age which had a climbing frame and proper swings that you could launch yourself from. The only other people there was a mother with her infant son, and they left pretty quick on account of a dark storm cloud that rolled in. Usually the place was so overrun that you had to queue up for a turn on anything, but that day we had the whole place to ourselves. The three of us played a shoe fling, this silly game where you built up momentum on the swing and then kicked your shoe off when you reached the highest point. Whoever's traveled the furthest won, and then inevitably everybody scrambled to recover their own shoe while battling to toss their opponents over the fence, forcing that person to hop all the way outside. After I won three out of five rounds, Evelyn and Georgia wandered over to the benches which sat beneath this curved metal shelter supported by three posts. Mostly, it was a space where parents sat in the shade and relaxed while their children went absolutely crazy. 
Since the girls did gymnastics at school, they scaled the shelter with ease. Then from the top, they called me names and pretended to sunbathe even though it was still super dreary out. To climb the shelter, you had to put your foot on this metal bolt sticking out of the middle post. Straighten your body and grab the top. But being a husky nerd, this maneuver eluded me. My face turned completely flush as I slid down the pole again and again. After five minutes, I was panting heavily. There was nothing that I could do besides wait for my turncoat sister and bratty cousin to climb down. Soon, I needed to go to the bathroom. I went through the gate and around the side of the park, where the grass grew so tall that it touched my chest. There, all I had to do was take 20 steps out and hunker down a little to disappear. As an added bonus, during the warmer months, you could charge into the field and send thousands of different colored butterflies soaring into the air. As I found a nice spot and watered the plants, midges danced around, forming clouds. I waved them away and then buttoned up my shorts and strolled back toward the park. I had a side-on view of the shelter where Evelyn and Georgia leaned over the edge, looking at the space directly beneath them. And there, through the mesh fence, I saw a stranger. He looked older and taller than my dad, and he was saying something to the girls. Even from a distance, the guy gave me the creeps. He wore this long trench coat and had a backpack around his shoulders. What little Harry did have was tied into a long ponytail. My brain frantically tried to match him up with all the adults that I knew. Maybe he worked at the school, possibly as a janitor or technician, or maybe he was somebody's dad, and Georgia and Evelyn had recognized him from one of those girls-only sleepovers. As I quietly shuffled forward for a closer look, the man swung his pack onto the ground and pulled a Mars bar out of the side compartment. The smart thing to do would have been to rush home and tell mom, but it seemed wrong to abandon Evelyn in Georgia like that. Instead, I shuffled along even further, straining to hear the conversation. It began to rain. I remember the sound of water splashing against the wooden playground equipment. The man broke off a portion of his chocolate bar and waved it around. After another brief back and forth, the stranger raised his volume, to the point that I could detect anger in his voice. And then, without warning, he jumped up and swiped at Georgia. Even from a standing position, the guy could almost touch the top of the shelter. Evelyn and Georgia shrieked and shuffled back along the curved surface. I remember thinking the rain would act as a water slide and send the two of them careening over the edge. It sounds ridiculous, but at that moment, I was more terrified that our parents would ban us from the park because one of them fell and broke a leg. When they reached the far side, the man circled around to try from the back. The two of them scrambled into the middle, mere inches outside of this weirdo's seemingly endless reach. That shelter couldn't have been more than six feet long and seven feet high. Terrified that the guy might spot me, I lay flat on my stomach and crawled to the very edge of the little no man's land, my eyes fixed forward. After a few more attempts to grab the girls, the man stared fixedly at the bench. He put one foot on it and hoisted his top half up onto the shelter, 
bringing himself eye level with Evelyn and Georgia, who pulled their knees into their chest and shrieked. My heart pounded wildly against my chest. Even though he wasn't in great shape, the man would no doubt make his way up sooner or later. I had to help them, but how? Without thinking, I took a deep breath and belted out the words, Dad, come quick, at the very top of my lungs. The man's head immediately snapped in my direction. I made myself completely flat, the grass tickling my face, raindrops larger than marbles pelting my back. An army of midges landed on my neck and took thousands of little bites. I itched everywhere but refused to move a single muscle. There was no question that he had seen me, that he had already started marching over. I wanted to be somewhere safe, like in my bedroom playing Mario Kart. That horrible crawling sensation against my flesh made it feel like some sort of horrible nightmare. It was a good thing that I had already peed. I squeezed my eyelids together and began counting. When I reached 1000 it felt like a long enough time had passed. I looked up. So far so good. The stranger wasn't looming over me. Up ahead, Evelyn and Georgia were still on the shelter safe and sound. The man had disappeared. Going as slowly as humanly possible, I left my hiding spot, periodically waving bugs away and continued into the park. At the front entrance, my eyes scanned from left to right. Still all clear. What happened? I asked as I had approached the shelter. That man tried to make us come down, Georgia replied. Her eyes looked all red and puffy. He offered us chocolate. My thoughts whipped back to school, to a special assembly where they told us to never take sweets from strangers. We should go, I said seriously. We should go home and tell mom. She'll know what to do. There was snot all down Evelyn's chin. I'm not coming down, she said between sniffles. He might come back. I glanced in the direction of the rear gate. My legs would not stop shaking. Evelyn said, He was in such a hurry that he left his backpack. Look. They both leaned all the way over the edge and pointed to one of the benches. Sure enough, there sat a backpack like the kind that we took to school, only much larger. You'd see a bunch of 20-somethings carrying those kinds around while interrailing. My cousin said, Charlie, run home and tell your mom that we're stuck. Quick, before he comes back. You expect me to run home alone? Her mouth became a grim straight line. It's either that or climb up here. Nowhere else is safe. You couldn't argue with that kind of logic. Okay. Less than ten steps from the shelter, Georgia added. Charlie, wait. What? Check his bag. I glanced at the pack, practically bouncing on my heels, desperate to get away. Why? He might have left something inside it, like a wallet. If you show it to the police, they'll know how to catch him. A memory popped into my head. Two months earlier, there had been a break-in at the nursing home, the same one that we had cut across to reach the park. Somebody had stolen a box of jewelry from one of the residents who lived on the ground floor and Noah Carnes found a necklace the thief dropped while escaping into the forest. Noah took the precious item straight to the reception. As a reward, 
The staff bought him five packs of Pokemon cards, and he pulled a Charizard in his first one. He even got his name in the local paper, accompanied by the words, Hero Boy. If I rummaged through this guy's backpack and found some incriminating evidence, like say, a bloody knife or a written confession to a series of robberies, that had to be at least worth 20 packs of cards, right? Despite my gut begging me to make myself scarce, I grabbed the pack. And the dang thing was hefty. Even a full-grown adult would have struggled to lift it. And whatever was inside stunk ten times worse than any mackerel. Immediately, my guts churned and twisted. The zipper, which got snagged on something coarse and bristly, wouldn't open any more than two or three inches, no matter how hard I tried to pull. Even still... That was enough to make the smell a thousand times worse. I had to keep myself from retching. What is it, Charlie? Asked Georgia. I pushed two fingers through the narrow gap and prodded whatever lay inside. It felt all wiry and nodded. I don't know, a fur coat maybe. Just then, there came this whine of metal against metal. I heard the awful sound and knew immediately what it was, and I spun around. There stood the stranger, his jaw tightly clenched. He sprinted toward me. Oh crap, he was actually sprinting toward me. Above my head, the girls cried out in high, frightened tones. Run, Charlie, run! From this point, the world and everything in it went into slow motion. Between strides, the man seemed to hang in midair for seconds at a time. I stood there hypnotized, a deer caught in a big headlight. The front gate lay to my left, but to escape, I would have to cover the distance and pull it open, which would cost valuable seconds. There wasn't nearly enough time. The second option was to fight, which my brain immediately dismissed as a dumb idea. That meant there was no choice other than to climb. The girls screamed loud enough to hurt my ears, finally breaking my paralysis. Already, the man had covered half the distance between us. In less than ten seconds, he would be able to grab me. Like a seasoned trapeze artist, I put one foot and then the other onto the bench, and then I launched myself toward the pole, twisting mid-jump. If you had asked me to perform that same maneuver again, I would have face-planted ten times out of ten. My fingertips narrowly grabbed at the top of the shelter, as my foot swung onto the bolt, my toes slipping off once or twice. Why did it have to rain that day out of all days? Both Evelyn and Georgia reached forward and grabbed my res, which did more harm than good, honestly. But all three of us were intoxicated with fear and panic. The situation had become a desperate scramble for survival. Past their shoulders, I watched the man disappear beneath the shelter, Beyond the point where I could see, his arms would no doubt clamp around my ankles at any moment. It felt like treading water while a shark fin circled around, steadily drawing closer, all those sharp teeth hidden below the surface. It was now or never. As the man lunged forward and screamed, I stabbed my toe into the bolt one final time and heaved myself up onto the shelter. As he swiped at my left foot, my trainer came loose and spun off onto the ground. I later thanked God that I hadn't tightened the laces after the shoe fling game. A gigantic bear paw reached up onto the shelter and felt its way along, 
I reached backward, my shoulders pressed tight against the girls. All three of us huddled close together, like sardines in a can. The hand reeled back. A moment later, the top half of the man's head popped up. You little piece of crap. A spiderweb of veins stood out across his temples. Get down here, he snarled, flames practically spewing from his nostrils. After several failed attempts to climb up, he grabbed the middle post and shook it. The entire structure rocked violently from side to side. This guy was so strong. All three of us hunkered down and clung to a slippery metal rail. I held on so tight that my knuckles started going white. And then, just when my strength was on the absolute verge of giving out, just when I thought I couldn't hold on for another second longer, an adult voice said, What the heck do you think you're doing? On the far side of the fence stood Mrs. Morey, accompanied by her German shepherd, Buster. Now Buster was the friendliest dog in the world. That said, he would gladly sink his teeth into a stranger's throat at the command of his owner, especially if said stranger threatened the neighborhood kids who slipped him a tasty doggy treats. Buster began to bark crazily, foam flying from his snout. Our pursuer seemed to contemplate the best course of action before grabbing his pack and rushing out the rear gate. By the time that Mrs. Moray and Buster reached us, the guy had slipped away into the forest. Mrs. Moray took us home where Mom called the police, who asked a million questions. Within the hour, they had squad cars patrolling the entire neighborhood. The police called me a hero and commended my quick thinking. Calling for Dad was a stroke of genius, they had said. It had scared off our attacker, who later decided the thing in his pack was too valuable to leave behind. As a reward, I got ten packs of Pokemon cards. No Charizard, though. The man split town immediately after our encounter, but he was later arrested for stalking a mother and her child, which led to a conviction for a string of murders and abductions, including Michelle Dunbar, although that ordeal took years. That day had a profound effect on everybody. Even now, Evelyn can't hike through a county park alone, but I haven't even told you the worst part of the story, the part that still gives me the occasional sleepless night. Two weeks after that narrow escape, our neighbor Mr. Bulger had been out foraging for mushrooms and stumbled over a pack half buried in the earth. Hoping to find some ID so he could return the lost item to its rightful owner, Mr. Bulger forced the zipper all the way open and found something horrible. Something disgusting. Something that made me cry when I heard and every day for the next six months. I remembered reaching inside and thinking that I had touched a fur coat. I couldn't have been more wrong. Inside were the remains of my ex-babysitter, Michelle Dunbar, chopped up into pieces. I had been feeling along the top of Michelle's severed head. I'm a paranormal investigator, and there is something far worse than demons and spirits. Written by Weird Bryce Guy. My friend told me about an explosion in the woods just outside of his house. He lives a few miles outside of town, not exactly in a cabin or even on a farm, but within some crossbreed of those things. 
a home encircled by a range of trees. More a grove than a fully-fledged forest. An environment that is rural enough to be a break for those of us who would like a break from the dullness of ever-expanding suburbia. An explosion of any nature, provided that it's not nuclear and fast approaching, would draw the interest of anyone. As soon as I got the text, I put on my best. Oh, I don't feel so good performance. And I was, of course, excused from work. Being a pharmacy technician in a highly frequented pharmacy of a grocery store. I drove to my friend's house who was waiting for me on his front porch, flashlights in hand. It was growing dark, with only the dwindling orange wake of the sun's departure left in the sky. We tracked through the underbrush, tripping over vines and bushes and tripping each other, when the opportunities for mischief arose. Along the way, he explained that he had heard the explosion while in his basement. He had felt the earth above and below violently tremble. When he went outside, he saw only a thin layer of smoke and dust. No great fireball, no spreading conflagration so he assumed that it was safe to investigate. And then knowing that I would want to come along, he had texted me. The site of the explosion wasn't far away from his house, maybe only half a mile. The nearby trees were blasted to ruins. The grass of the area was incinerated. The air was charged with some kind of residual static or visibly undetectable emission. A crater the size of a house sat in the middle of the destruction. It was several meters deep and blackened by whatever had caused the detonation of the impact. Weirdly, and despite how thick with something, the air felt it wasn't hot. The general atmosphere hadn't been heated by the environmental violence. My friend, for privacy's sake, let's call him Oscar, tentatively touched the scorched ground around the crater and reported that it wasn't too hot, that we could walk on it without fear of burning our shoes. Without further investigation or caution, he slid into the depression and began rummaging around in the debris. With a little more caution, I joined him, and confirmed that the ground was indeed only warm, not at all the he-blasted earth you would expect to find in such a newly craterous area. For a few minutes we probed around, but found nothing that gave us any idea about what exactly had happened. Disappointed, we clambered up the curved wall of the crater, mantled the rim, and sat along it. I speculated that rather than something having detonated, some object had fallen from space and disintegrated upon impact. Oscar countered that though it was equally likely, there should have still been some remnant no matter how small of the celestial object. Neither of us could claim to be even amateur geologists, physicists, or astronomers, so the details of our observations were limited, our conjectures rudimentary. One night and its accompanying cold arrived, we decided to go back to his house and report the incident to the authorities, since they apparently hadn't been aware of it, based on the fact that no one had come to investigate and the 30 or so minutes that we had spent hanging around it. Back at Oscar's house, we decided to do what we usually did together, attempt to communicate with the other side. Oscar is what you would call the dude with a slightly morbid but mostly just entertaining hobby. 
but Oscar calls himself a novice occultist. In the three years that I've known him, he's amateurishly dabbled in all manner of occult and supernatural practices, activities, and studies. Nothing illegal or even morally questionable. He's not evil-hearted or even carelessly curious. But it's an area of interest that he's extremely passionate about, and he engages in it almost nightly. Being a fan of horror media, I would usually play the part of his assistant, at least in the preparation of whatever seance or investigation he happened to have planned. Rarely did I conduct, with equal standing, the rituals and the ceremonies myself. Not out of fear for any negative spiritual repercussions, but because the often absurd rituals typically required the memorization of incantations, invocative gestures and postures, and other learned demonstrations that I just didn't have the time or care to memorize and perform. And as you might have suspected, we never made any actual, provable contact with entities beyond the grave, or beings outside of the mundane sphere of existence. Not once did we call forth from physically inaccessible vaults of space and time entities of a different biological order. The black gulfs between worlds were not traversed at our beckon by alien life forms or itinerant forces of light and energy. But it was fun to echo his wild calls and mimic his silly gesturing in the dead of night. And we usually watched some movie or played some game afterwards, where people were far more successful to their benefit or detriment, in summoning the aforementioned things. I suppose Oscar was a bit bummed out by the harmlessness of the crater, because he suggested, or rather passionately insisted, that we delve deeper. That we put aside the usual trivialities of his hobby, and instead cast our nets into the outermost recesses, but not of the universe or some abstractly defined dimension. Oscar wanted to invite into his video game memorabilia-filled basement the unthought of forces that had yet to exist, had yet to be created by some higher force or forged by the fundamental particles of the universe. He explained it like so. The reason why we haven't heard from anyone, the reason why no one answers our hails is because they've already been in contact with humans. Anyone willing to talk to our species is already doing so as we speak, with those who called out to them years and decades before. Why would anybody want to talk to us specifically? I mean, two random guys were old news. The beings out there know that there's nothing of value that they could learn from us. Nothing that we know that people better equipped and more knowledgeable than us couldn't tell them. So instead of wasting our time searching for something within this realm, let's move even further beyond. Let's try and contact someone, something in the formless domain of the uncreated. One night was firmly settled, we cleared the space in front of his TV of the various game cases and snack wrappers that littered it and sat in the harshly threaded rug that he had gotten from some pawn shop months ago. I expected him to get out and arrange his collection of candles and censers, but the only paraphernalia that he brought out was a mechanical pocket watch. It was old and clearly an antique. The casing slightly tarnished and the glass faded, as with the inner accumulation of dust. The clock hands, despite the timepiece's age, seemed in working order. 
There is something out there, an entity living on the border of this universe, who calls himself the Black Horologist. He is not who will be contacting, but will be tapping into his power, an ability that he possesses. He is a gardener of outer time, able to nurture, cultivate, or halt its passage. I have read about him and his agents, and while they're all dangerously sinister, I believe that we can access his power without them becoming aware of us, similar to holding onto a moving vehicle while on a skateboard. The driver wouldn't be aware of you, unless they happen to look in the mirror. I nodded, understanding the analogy, though not the mechanics of how exactly we would access this power. Considering our previous, unfaltering incapacity to make contact with even the most basic spirits. Using this pocket watch, which has been in a word as sanctified by the black horologist, I will temporarily become an anointed horologist, a servant of the black horologist. Once having that status, I will project myself forward in time until I outpace even that ultra-elemental phenomenon and I reach the domain of the uncreated, who, by virtue of their non-existence, know all that was, is, and will be. I will converse with them and learn of all things, and then I will recall my spirit to my body and share the unreal knowledge with you. Together, we will finally be acclaimed investigators of not just the paranormal, but the paratemporal as well. My responses to these grand and cosmically dramatic proclamations were sufficient enough to amicably goad him along, without seeming mocking or insincere. I had absolutely no belief in the plausibility of this latest conjecture, and assumed that the pocket watch had been his grandfather's, from whom he had inherited in the house, and that the black horologist might even have been a reference to the old man himself. But still, I was excited if only to see a new performance from Oscar, who always utilized the full extent of his theater kit upbringing. I had anticipated just how he had planned to use the pocket watch, though. With a face that at once became firmly set, almost grim, Oscar withdrew a hunting knife from his waistband, plunged the blade into his chest, peeled back a layer of glistening flesh, and jammed the pocket watch into the bodily opening. He did this quickly, smoothly, without even a facial twitch to denote the agony he must have assuredly felt. It happened too quickly for me to interrupt it. The transition from excited rambling to what he did to himself was bizarrely seamless. Sitting on the rug, back perfectly straight, legs crossed before him, Oscar then closed his eyes and grew stiller than any of the inanimate objects around us. He assumed a state of absolute immobility that I somehow sensed was consistent even down to the cellular level. An atomic stillness as if he had simply blinked into another dimension, leaving only an afterimage of himself in our realm. Even the blood from the still, gaping chest wound had stopped flowing. A frozen river of crimson trailed down his green t-shirt, like some gruesome red brick road that tapered off into a sprawling forest. A moment later, I heard a loud ticking as if there were many or just a few massive clocks behind the walls around us. The ticking was unpleasantly audible, an ominous countdown to some unknown yet unpleasant event. 
It was only after I had shut my eyes and my ears had honed in on the source that I realized these sounds were coming from Oscar's chest. His face was still frozen, as was the rest of his body, and yet the mechanical tick of a slowly rotating clock hand echoed from out of his chest. I stared, horrified at the gruesome image of my friend, unsure of what to do. A part of me wanted to reach into the wound and pull out the pocket watch to hopefully silence the dreadful, maddening ticking. Another part of me, when I'm fairly embarrassed of, wanted me to leave, to flee my friend's home, lest I be taken by whatever spirit, presence, or sudden affliction of insanity had possessed him. But despite the potency of this latter cowardly urge, I stayed. Before I could think of anything else to do, my attention was drawn from my friend's still body into the sole basement window, which looked upon the backyard at ground level. The moonlight shone down heavily upon the yard, illuminating the overgrown grass that my friend had neglected since inheriting the house. But between the thick blades and the petals, I saw something that dropped my jaw and sent a paralyzing the pervasive chill through my spine. I saw the woods in the distance reform, trees that had been felled in the early meteoric impact when re-erected, as if pulled upright by some inverse gravitational force. Leaves that had been scattered floated back to their respective branches. Dirt and natural debris were carried on invisible winds back to these surfaces from which they had been blasted or shaken. It was as if the impact or explosion and its disastrous effects were being reversed, as if the hands of time were being rewound. But the moon was indivisibly affected by this phenomenon, its position in the night sky was not altered in accordance with the reversal of the destruction. Its light was not recalled and replaced by the light of the sun. And what couldn't have been more than a minute, the words beyond Oscar's house were restored to the state that they had been in earlier that day, prior to the impact by that strange and unwitnessed celestial object. When nothing else of note appeared outside, I turned back to Oscar and instinctively recoiled away from him. His skin was incredibly pale and his eyes, though open, were fixed on something that I instantly knew to be beyond normal sight, some image or vision that to me would be unseeable. His expression had not changed much from the grimly calm face he had had moments before, but there was almost an imperceptible exaggeration of his bleak features. Like a parent being told that not only had their child misbehaved at school, but that they had also have to come pick up the troublesome student in the middle of the day. Finally regaining my voice, unaware that I had lost it in my shock, I called out to Oscar asking what exactly he was seeing. Unsurprisingly, he didn't respond, but he kept on staring at something beyond the bounds of normal sight. I wanted to shake him to snap him out of his dark fixation, but I didn't know what effect sudden movement might have on his body, which had suffered a severe wound only moments before. And still, the pocket watch's hands had ticked on, unsettlingly audible. When the ticking abruptly stopped, the atmosphere simultaneously felt as if the air had been instantly recycled, removed and replaced in only a second but a horribly tangible second nonetheless. I felt my breath snatched away from me 
and for the briefest moment I experienced total respiratory absence, a terrifying breathlessness that I wouldn't wish upon anyone. Additionally, coinciding with this bizarre moment was the return of color to Oscar's face and the relaxation of his severe expression. His eyes blinked and his chest heaved, as if his lungs were taking in breath for the first time in a while. The blood from his chest wound resumed its flow down his shirt, eventually reaching and staining the hideous rug beneath him. Oscar's hands went to his chest in an attempt to stop the bleeding, but the blood kept pouring from between his fingers, pushing through the cracks and streaming down his body as if flowing from a geyser. He made a noise that sounded more bestial than human, a croak that lacked any vocal indications of intellectual articulation, the death noise of an animal. Shortly after this terrible utterance, he did speak, but his words were no less bleak and disconcerting than that feral croak, and sounded as if they had been spoken from across a distance, far greater than a few feet that had separated us. I went there. I went beyond time, into the domain of the uncreated. Oh my god, you wouldn't believe it, it's all there. God, the devil, and every monstrous thing in between. As I stood among it all, I saw time racing towards me. Time, a pitifully slow thing, oh man. It's all pure potential, that place. Endless, untouched clay. A blanket, borderless canvas. The unfertilized ovum of the yet-to-be cosmos. And then it spat me out, rejected something that was formed indefinite, before I could obtain any supreme truths. I'm speeding to you now, racing back along with time, that dogged pursuer. It wouldn't let me go. I'm hurtling towards the earth, back to the present, but I'm going too fast and I can't see my body. I can't control my trajectory. Outside, before his sentence was finished, something struck the earth. The basement was thrown into chaos as the ground trembled in the impact. Video game cases and snack wrappers flew across the room. I fell onto the rug and I clung there, feeling like the world had been turned upside down. After a few moments when the house finally settled, I tentatively pushed myself up and looked at Oscar. His body was lying on the floor covered in snack wrappers and dust. In a short-lived moment of excitement, I noticed that his chest wound had been sealed, as if time had been rewound to back before he had cut into himself. Even his clothing was free of any stains, as was the rug. Oddly, not only had the stains vanished from the rug, but the spots where they had been were also free of the stains and damages of prolonged use, as if the very threads had been replaced or restored to a former time. The pocket watch was in his hand. But seeing this it drained the excitement from my body, and dread reared itself again in my heart. The pocket watch was clutched in what was undeniably the grip of a dead man. Oscar's eyes still fixed towards a single point. They had lost their intrinsic luster and had become truly unaware of the immediate environment. With the reversal of events, Oscar had died. His soul, I realized with a grim certainty had been the meteoric object. It explained why there had been nothing to see when we had examined the crater earlier in the day. The soul, the human spirit, whatever it is made of, is evidently invisible to the naked eye, or is so feebly phantasmal that it had wholly disintegrated upon impact.
I closed my friend's eyes, pried the pocket watch from his hand, and carried him upstairs. I set his body on a chair in his living room and called the police, hoping that they would actually respond, this time since they had yet to come investigate the meteor. I told the 911 emergency operator that he had had a heart attack, and I made no mention of the pocket watch, nor his cross-cosmic, time-surmounting journey. I went to a town where the police turned down cases. I found out why. Written by I'm Reckless 25. As soon as I had heard that a woman had burned her own son alive in his room because she thought he was possessed by a demon, I knew this wasn't going to be a walk in the park. My heart is in shambles upon hearing that but it's actually something that I've had the misfortune of growing used to hearing by now. I had received a call from the woman's husband, and he said that he was tired of watching this town fall victim to the forces of hell. His words, claiming the police are doing little to nothing about missing person reports, leading them to often close the case with an apology and condolences. Coincidentally enough, the husband had friends who knew a client of mine and had referenced me. I usually charge a lot because I gain results. He accepted and I began searching news reports about the area, also informing him that we could meet the following day. Well, he was right about one thing. The police weren't doing much of anything in this town. The forces of health thing was yet to be determined. But reading through the most recent crime reports I found in the rather desolate public records building further proved that what he had said was true. And this is how I found out about a town in Florida that I'll never visit again. I won't be giving you my name because it's not important anymore. I do work as a private eye and have been going on for seven years now. But after this one, I think that I'm done. I usually don't investigate normal cases, you see. I take various cases, depending. These aren't the only ones, though. I'll take up the cases that detective and police will just stick to keeping closed. The ones that they don't dare speak about to their families because it haunts them at night. I guess you could say that. I'm not wired like most people. I yearn for the unknown. Solving a whodunit over the years gave me that satisfaction of keeping the streets clean one bad guy at a time. But sometimes it's just not enough for me and new killers are born every day. I'm only one guy but I'll collaborate if something is out of my reach, even with these stranger things. Upon my time under the badge, I've come to see things in a different way. When you've had to witness a body after body left behind in a serial killer's wake with a firm belief that God intended it to be that way, you can get a little depressed and even angry. I've been in interviews with madmen that explain they've tasted the flesh of an angel, and it showed them the truth about heaven and death. How do people truly get this sick, you might ask? Well, it's easy. Trauma, guilt, sadness, anger, the list goes on. You get used to the yammering and the clinging to a logical or a spiritual reason behind their insidious intent. But what about the people who cling to the belief that they are being told that their actions are just by some higher power? But that higher power is actually real, 
Nicobe schizophrenic, suffering a psychotic break. But in some cases, it's more than meets the eye. I have come across a case where a 26-year-old male was convinced that their co-worker was some kind of antichrist, causing them to start a YouTube channel when nobody believed them, explaining there were more people like him out there, trying to prove his belief until finally one day, he bought a gun from the local arms dealer, and he took out an innocent man after work in the parking lot. Don't bother looking for the channel. My morbid curiosity won me over, but I couldn't find it. Sure, it does sound like a nut job, and the thing is, you won't hear about these kinds of things on the news sometimes. You won't know who any of these people are unless you know somebody or were there. And what police won't tell you is that the man had just gotten back from a retreat in the mountains, not too close to home, and something came back with them. The group the men was involved with is apparently still being investigated after their country's police force had found and reported back to these states several decomposing bodies and recently dug up graves and a large open field near their compound. The group church building housing a rather peculiar looking shrine and human remains caked to the supposed deity. That case is still ongoing because the supposed cult leader in question was said to show unprecedented strength and abilities unknown to the agents that went in to detain him and subsequently failed. I've heard that the FBI opened an investigation with some kind of government task force agency. Now believe what you want, but you won't hear about this kind of thing anywhere else that I'm sure. Yeah, I've come across some interesting things in this line of work. That's only one of them. I would normally share more and tell you to even look me up anytime and get in contact if you're experiencing something unexplainable. But after some of the more recent events... I've decided that I have to go under the radar. It's important that you understand I take my job seriously. But besides that, I value my life a little more. Now I am guess I'm posting this here because there is a genuine fear that I have grown for this place as the days roll by through my investigation. It's not just the case itself. There's an air here that fills me with the sense that I'm being observed from unseen eyes constantly. Needless to say, however, I had to see what I could do about it. It's not every day you get a call like that. The meeting went fine and the husband had his head mostly down. The man explained that he used to be involved with two committees in crime watches, but he didn't say anything more on that and left the building after our meeting was finished. Before the thought of getting a room somewhere had crossed my mind, I looked over at a map of the town once more to see what exactly I was getting into. Now typically, I work in more urban areas and I deal with city folk and the like. This town is large with a low population and the inhabitants can carry a heavy southern accent. The sticks is where I was and I wasn't used to that. I was vulnerable and wasn't prepared for this at all. In these parts of the state, thick vegetation is seemingly terraforming the entire landscape. The sounds of crickets, frogs, and wildlife are always present even during the day, and distant hums of swamp or gutteral. Long dirt roads sneak off in various directions with acres of space bought by homeowners and settlers. If you had lived there, your neighbors were a good half a mile away at most. If I were investigating a murder there... I would yield dead ends most of the time, and people would likely get away with it. 
People would be found overdosed on some substance or prescription drugs in a ditch or in some abandoned farmhouse at decaying alone. In some cases, those overdoses are actually quite literally murder victims. This state has a black hole of general filth and depravity. All of these and most eventually lead to more events of misfortune and utter chaos. Those bodies are indeed left behind by some prowler of the dark, both human and not. Even local legends of hauntings and cryptids are also told by natives in a lot of southern states if you don't pay attention. Not only to inform or scare, but to warn any people who might get curious about what may be in those woods behind their friend's house, or what trail leads to what mystery, etc. And despite these things, above all else, we'll tell a story that you should listen to anyway. During my investigation, I visited the home to take it all in. The house was half burned, being quite a distance away. The neighbors called 911 after the first sighting of the raging fire from their window. I couldn't imagine the feeling of being the husband, as he was working a night shift that evening and had just recently received a raise due to his standing in the company. And to give you an idea of what I'm capable of, I've got directional mics, sonar, thermals, metal detectors, drones, a couple of creepy surveillance vans, laptops, and hardware that cost me a fortune, you name it. I will find you, and I will make sure I do a better job than the detective who won't look for anything out of the ordinary. But I also have tech that can aid my more different agendas. The town I went to that involved the burning was the one time I ever questioned if I should quit and sell all of my gadgets to a pawn shopper somewhere on the dark web. Hey, what do you want from me? I have to sometimes reach out to bad people to dig up bad things. I will not be disclosing the main location of this place to you, but it is in Florida. I'm sorry, but I don't want any more people hurt, thinking that they can be a hero or much, much worse. Don't ever think about looking for this town. Never in my life had I seen someone so frigid and scared when I went to interview that woman at the town's tiny police station just off the highway. The cops let me do whatever I wanted, basically. They said she was getting the max penalty no matter what anyway because the judge had already made it clear once that they had found the body. Now I can't say that I don't disagree. The act of doing such a thing was incredibly vile. The husband explained that they were religious and went to church every Sunday, so he doesn't understand what his wife could have been thinking. Besides this, they seemed to be a normal, conforming family with little problems. She didn't have any drugs in her system, and the husband claimed that the boy was rebelling against them since he had just turned 14 at the time with a new girlfriend. I went to a school about 8 miles away to do some more digging. The boy was an honor roll student and had a love for football but would often stay out late, smelling like booze upon coming home sometimes. Still, that should never have been any reason to torch their only son alive. I had my tape recorder handy for her interview. I couldn't even get many words out of the woman, save for a few screams and shouts. She would often repeat, God shouldn't allow this, he had to be cleansed, as well as, I had no choice, that wasn't my son over and over in short bursts. She would stare up and just wail in total sorrow and pain, like she didn't want to burn her only son alive, yet was somehow forced into doing it. 
The police said they felt the same way but didn't know what to do about it. And priests had been hired before, and the closest churches are very busy, they had explained. When these things happen, the priests and followers will pray and hold sermons for their cause, often visiting the homes to bring a calming presence along with their faith. All the while, the victims' families continue to keep up the hope that these random acts of terror will cease, only to yield a little to no effect against whatever force was sucking this town's happiness, an apparent life force dry day by day. The police chief, upon my interview, spoke of these inexplicable things that happen here, especially involving a corpse. The deaths occur mainly during the night after the coroner comes back with the report in times of death, but no doubt unexplainable occurrences that leave the medical examiners baffled. He explained that once, there was a boy who went walking into the woods early one morning and never came back. Two weeks later, the boy's body was found. However, the body was somehow changed. The boy had mutations. Small bone-like appendages clawing through his wrists and elbows. The boy had these strange, gnarled fangs and his eyes were bulging out of their sockets. He was found in the state, bloated in a small body of water in those woods, and the family swore they never knew what happened and couldn't possibly understand what it meant. This got me thinking. I've heard of cryptid transformations before, but they are usually through horrible ancient rituals where the victim or the willing person would either have their organs taken as an offering to become undead, or to perhaps have taken a foreign substance after something was given up, both causing their anatomy to change. But for a six-year-old to be forced into doing something like that or that the boy did it to himself was completely out of the question. This was something else. I visited that boy's home and spoke with the parents. They showed me some of his drawings before he went into those woods. The one that stands out the most is back at the town's forensic lab being scanned for things that may be out of the ordinary, like fingerprints or something else like microscopic fibers or residue that are not human. I'll be sure to snap a picture and link back to that later once I get back to the station. But let me tell you, the amount of limbs this thing had... I don't think that child could have come up with it on his own, especially with several red-marked frowning faces attached at the ends of them, with little black lines around the heads, giving off the appearance of bleeding, childlike signs. When I went to walk back to my car after I had spoken to that family, I could distinctly make out dark smudges near my door handles. Upon looking inside, there was nothing but the creeping thought that something was near my vehicle during that time looms and my only conclusive thought is that it tried to get to me because I've been investigating this town for too long. I know when to take a hint. My head was on a swivel, driving from then on as me constantly looking in the rear view and to the back seat. I got a car wash to clean away the reminder. I've never had anything supernatural get this close to me, and I don't think that I'll ever get over that anytime soon. All of it has made me feel dread for the very first time in my life. No matter how bizarre this case is, and no matter how many people have died and no matter what else may happen in that town, I will not be going into those woods to find anything out. I know better. This will be my official report and a warning to you. As for them, the people in that town I mean well, this is above my pay grade. 
I've informed the husband that he can keep the rest of his money here. What the state that his house and life is in. He'll need every penny and I already feel bad for charging the poor guy. But the only answers that he needs are away from that town and those woods. I won't bring myself to dig my own grave. Maybe that task force agency will somehow listen to me if I reach out or if they see this. If you have any ideas, I say keep them to yourself. I won't be involving myself with it once I post this. I truly believe that whatever this thing is, it's the cause of all the misery and carnage that's happening in this Floridian town in the middle of nowhere. Because I got a call from the police chief I spoke with about the boy that was burned alive. He received the autopsy report, explaining those same bone-like appendages sticking out of his limbs as well. A century after the archaeological expedition disappeared, I found out their fate. Written by With Bite. The journal was one of the dozen possessions that they had left behind. It lay open on a small table, a fountain pen, and a bottle of ink next to it. The ink was cobalt blue and made by Wilkins of London, according to the label. The journal itself had a dark leather cover and unlined vellum pages. Apart from the dust gathered on the exposed surfaces, there was little sign that it had been a hundred years since anyone had handled it. As I turned the pages, tentatively at first, scared that they might tear, I felt a shiver pass through me. The writing was neatly controlled. I was not an expert on how the human mind worked, but it struck me that this was the penmanship of an individual who was organized and rational. The name of the author was inscribed on the first page. John Benjamin Andrews. I wiped the sweat from my face and took in deep breaths. I was a respected academic and I held back from doing what I really wanted to do, which was to jump up and down and holler, yes. I looked back down at the name written in the journal and thought, after all this time, I'm so close. I took another deep breath and I began to read. We set sail from Southampton shortly after noon. The sky was clear and there was a brisk wind. I stood with my hands on the rail and I looked out to sea, smiling broadly. My colleagues were on either side of me. When I glanced around at them, their expressions mirrored my own. We were a small, enthusiastic band of adventurers, four in total. I was the leader of our group. I was almost 35. For many years, I had hardly set foot outside the grounds of the university, which had become the center of my life, while I rose to the position of professor of archaeology. Even the Great War, which had stolen the lives of so many men, had passed me by, because of the injury to my legs suffered when I was still at school. A motor car had appeared out of nowhere while I was crossing the road, and I was so shocked by this metal beast, the first one I had ever seen that I was rooted to the spot. The car veered but still caught me and I spent eight long months in the hospital. The doctor saved my leg but pain had been my constant companion ever since. I would have never appeared as the hero in a novel or on a cinema screen, silently overcoming villains while the organist in the pit worked up a sweat. 
but I made up for my physical shortcomings with a fiery determination. The world of academia was cutthroat. If you were as ambitious as I, and as well as at devoting myself to research and to tutoring my students, I had also become adept at the seedy art of politics. I formed friendships with the powerful, friendships that were empty of any affection and can be ended at the drop of a hat when it was time to change my loyalties. I said things that I did not believe and kept my silence on matters that I cared about. I did more on top of this, things that I will not write here, as I do not wish to incriminate myself. It was all part of the game, and I was a skilled player. Otherwise, the expedition would not have been funded, and I would have not been its leader, heading for a destination thousands of miles away from the familiar comforts of my life. This is a journey of three weeks. I have decided not to share the encounters that I made on board with people from different stations in life, the misery caused by the gut-churning waves, or snippets of observation from the ports at which we had stopped on the way. There are other travelers on this ship on Grand Tours, whose memoirs will no doubt be packed with gossip and romance, dazzling sights and breathless descriptions. I leap forwards instead to our arrival. My first sensation when I disembarked from the ship was how crowded the dock was. I had never seen so many people crowded into one place. And a storm of activity raged around me, pushing me this way and that. A porter carrying a crate barged me out of the way. I felt hands trying to grab a hold of me, and when I tried to brush them away with the stick that I used because of my damaged leg, I saw they belonged to children. They were reaching up to me, begging, I supposed. With their distended bellies and sunken cheeks, many were clearly starving. I looked up and away. I was not here to save the lost, and even if I had been there, there were far too many. I saw that they had gathered around my colleagues as well. Each had their own little swarm of urchins. Mitchell was a solid student who made up for his lack of flair with hard work. He was fair-skinned and suffering very badly from the effects of the sun. Jensen was a former soldier who worked as a groundsman at the university. I had brought him along because I assumed we would need brawn as well as brains on the expedition. The final member of our party was Taylor. He had been born into a mining family and, through a determination that I recognized, had become an undergraduate at the university. Eventually, we all made our way beyond the worst of the crowd at the dock and into the crowds pressed into the narrow streets, which were even worse. The stench of sweat and tobacco and food being cooked in stalls made me want to retch. I was incredibly relieved when I finally stepped through the doors of the hotel that we were booked into for our first night, and I found myself in an almost deserted lobby, a fan turned delicately above me, making no difference whatsoever to the heat. But still, it was a welcome sight. My leg was by this point burning with pain and I was desperate for a strong drink and a hot bath. Followed by my equally bedraggled colleagues, I signed the guest book. The concierge handed me a telegram. It was two days old and was from the head of my college. Carter given one last opportunity to make breakthrough, it read. Carnivon to extend and no more funds. This pleased me. Howard Carter's work was well known to me, but it seemed that his efforts continued to be fruitless and that his benefactor 
Lord Carnarvon had decided to withdraw support. It looked like a man who I regarded as a competitor was faltering, and as exhausted as I was, I found it hard to sleep that night. I was desperate to be on sight and to begin the dig, and to succeed. I wrote that last sentence five days ago. Five hellish days. We have traveled by motor car and by pack horse and on foot. We had been feasted on by insects. Mitchell's already scarlet face swelled up alarmingly as a result. We had been set on by a pack of wild dogs. Even when Jensen began dispatching them with clinical accuracy that kept coming, driven by madness it seemed, from the foam frothing between their fangs. And every mile of the way I've seen birds gathered over carrion at the side of the trail that we followed. But we have made it. We have set up camp in the ruins of a building of indeterminate age, crudely assembled with stone blocks. My theory is that the blocks could date back to the time of the Great Construction, which took place on the site in a far distant age. The theories are all that I have. The rest is legend and mystery. It is written that on this site there rose the tomb of a great king. Even his name had been lost, but his was said to have been a cruel and bloodthirsty reign. A more romantic man than I might say that all traces of this despo had been wiped clean by this time. The down-to-earth explanation is that the materials of the tomb were steadily stripped away to be used elsewhere. My focus aim is to find if any part of the tomb remained intact, and for this I must look beneath the ground. For my research, I speculate that the presence of an underground chamber is a possibility. After resting, we will begin our search. Our search. As I resume my record of this expedition, the hours that have passed since I wrote those words have been fascinating and troubling. We located what appeared to be an entrance to the underground chamber towards dusk. It was little more than a crack in the earth and we could have easily passed it by. But Taylor spotted it and waved us over. He and Jensen got down on their knees and began clawing away at the dirt and dust as soon as it became clear that this was an entrance. We peered into the darkness of what appeared to be a passageway. My heart was beating faster and faster and for a moment I almost forgot the pain in my leg. There was, though, one caveat to my excitement. A thick slab of rock lay by the entrance. It looked like it had been carved into a rectangular shape, but was now split into a number of pieces. The logical assumption was that this rock had once covered the entrance, and that it seemed that someone had come before us and broken into the chamber. Uh, tomb robbers, Mitchell muttered bitterly. I said nothing. It was dark by now and there was no way that we could carry on. We turned and began to head back to the shelter of our base. All apart from Taylor. Wait, he said. Can you hear that? I paused and listened but heard nothing. From their expressions, neither did Mitchell or Jensen. And Taylor scowled and got down on his knees and leant towards the opening. There, he exclaimed, and then turned to face us and asked, Can you hear them scream? Mitchell and Jensen rushed to where Taylor had knelt. I hobbled over as fast as I could. Jensen was shaking his head. I hear nothing, he said. It must have been your imagination. Still, when we descend, I will go first. He tapped the holster at his waist and added, 
in case of any unwelcome surprises. Mitchell looked sour-faced. We should reconsider, he began, but I cut him off. We continue, I told him. There are secrets here that I will know and nothing will stop me. For his part, Taylor wanted to linger, but I insisted a good night's rest was needed and so we all returned to our base. Where now we wait for first light. In the morning, we will descend into the tomb's underground chamber. These were the last words written in the journal. I closed it, the fold-up table on which it rested, the map curling at the edges, the small medicine box, and the other things the expedition had left behind that morning when they had set off to the tomb were objects of historical interest in their own right. I turned to James, one of the post-grad students who I had invited to join me on this expedition, and I asked him to begin cataloging them. He looked up from his laptop and nodded. Allison, the other post-grad, asked brightly, What shall I do, Professor McGregor? Get ready to follow in the footsteps of the disappeared, I told her. Her smile wavered for a moment before she replied, Okay. For me, part of the enjoyment of teaching is injecting a little drama into my lectures. I like to combine technology with a compelling narrative to try and really bring the past to life. One of the last things I did before setting off on my expedition was put in a funding request for virtual reality headsets, which I wanted to use next term. It would be a fascinating new way to explore the past. Before then, I had an itch to scratch. I had first heard of John Benjamin Andrews when I was a postgrad student myself two decades ago. He was and remained the youngest professor in my university's history. A rising star of archaeology went missing 100 years ago, in the summer of 1922, while attempting to locate the tomb of a little-known ancient ruler. After reading about him in the official archives of the university, I sought out more information and came across articles from newspapers published at the time that would not have been out of place online today. They were pure trash talk. Andrews was accused of using the funds that he had been given for the expedition to start a new life abroad. He was supposedly about to lose his job because of his scandalous behavior. There was talk of opium use and illegitimate children. A photograph accompanying one article and showing Andrews smiling seriously into the camera dressed in his university robes was captioned, Is Missing Academic Fleeing Justice? Well, I did not believe a word of it. Throughout my career, I had had to deal with the fact that funding and positions were scarce and this created a competitive atmosphere that sometimes would spill over into backstabbing. That had no doubt also been the case in Andrew's day, but I couldn't believe that such a talented academic would resort to fraud and stage and not only their disappearance but that of three colleagues. My expedition aimed to restore the reputation of a fellow scholar in the field of archaeology. It was a personal venture during the summer break, and one that I was paying for with my own money. For their parts, any discoveries we made about the ancient ruler and his tomb would benefit James and Allison's studies, so everybody was happy. While James cataloged the possessions and I asked Allison to come with me as I began the search for the entrance referenced in the journal, our luck was very much in. After only two hours, I found an opening in the ground. 
Fragments of a carved rock that could have once been used to cover it were still visible nearby. And the opening itself was just about wide enough for an adult to pass through. I asked Allison to run back to the old base and fetch James and some torches for each of us. While she was gone, I photographed the opening and marked its position on the map. And then while no one was there to watch, I breathed in and I squeezed myself through the opening. My middle-aged spread was not ideal in these circumstances, and I didn't want Allison and James to see me sweating and struggling, and then sighing with relief and letting my belly flop back out once I had made it. You okay down there, Professor? James called out from above me. I laughed and replied, Come on in, the darkness is lovely. With a lot more ease than I had managed, the two postgrads climbed down the entrance. Allison handed me a torch and I clicked it on. Fear gripped me as the beam of the torch revealed a hideous sight. We were in a narrow passageway. The ground was covered in bones. I picked out a jaw, a ribcage, the tangled bones of fingers as I moved my torch over the passageway, and then a skull appearing sightlessly back at me. All were the remains of humans, there was no question. Behind me, Allison swore quietly. I lowered my torch for a moment. My hands were shaking and my mouth felt dry. I told myself to get a grip that I was a professional. I had excavated human remains before, but this felt very different. This felt like we had stumbled across a scene of some hideous tragedy or act of barbaric cruelty. I knew we should go back to regroup and return when we could properly document the remnants which lay before us but my mind was racing. Was this the site which Andrews and his three colleagues saw a century ago? How did they react? Did they venture along the passageway, and if they did, what did they find? I had to know. I shuffled around in the constricted space to face Allison and James. I am going to go on, I told them. I think you two should go back. No way, James replied. Yeah, Professor, Allison added, this is awesome. The youthful enthusiasm of the reaction brought a subdued smile to my face. Fine, I said, we go on together, but be careful. They both gave me the thumbs up and we started to move forward. It was impossible not to step on bone and I walked as lightly as I could to try and not break anything. The passageway was widening and still the procession of bones lay all around us. There must have been these skeletal remains of hundreds of people in there, all crammed together. As the passageway continued to widen, it also began to slope steeply downwards and I used one hand placed against the side to steady myself. A few minutes later, I was turning my torch to get a better look and had an almost complete skeleton when I should have been concentrating where I was going. It was like a mathematical equation. Dark passageway plus distracted professor plus steep slope equals a distracted professor falling over and tumbling down. I landed in a heap and I grabbed my chest. The fall had winded me and left me disoriented. My torch had fallen by my side and I picked it up and began to look around. I was in a rectangular chamber which stretched further than I could make out. Bones continued to cover the ground that I could see and there was no signs of James or Allison. Hey, you guys, I shouted. Where are you? No answer. The only sound was my ragged breathing. 
and then Allison screamed. She sounded close and terrified. I shot to my feet and yelled out, What's wrong? Silence returned to the chamber. Allison, I tried again, and then James. Neither responded. I began to feel sick. I had brought them to this place. If anything had happened to them, I would never forgive myself. I began to scramble back up the slope, not caring now that I was disturbing the bones. They cracked underfoot and I desperately tried to make my way back. I fell again, punched the ground in frustration and was revving myself up to try again when I noticed movement out of the corner of my eye. I span around, lifted my torch. What the? I exhaled. A man stood, exposed in the torchlight. He was pale and painfully emaciated. I could make out the sharp lines of his bones beneath his skin. That looked as if I had almost faded away to nothing. A smile flickered across his face. Welcome, he said. His voice was hoarse, a desiccated whisper in the bone-strewn chamber. I stood, open mouth, shock piling into shock, because now I had recognized him. Andrews, I said, Professor Andrews. Even though he was grotesquely changed, I could still recognize the man whose photograph I had seen in a hundred-year-old news article. Ah, uh, he said quietly. The words sounded more like a death rattle than an exclamation of pleasure. Through his expression, he clearly was pleased that I had recognized him. His slight smile had become a grin and I saw that his teeth were decaying shards. Indeed, he said, I am he. I fought to understand whatever mystery had led to his disappearance. Andrew surely would have died many years ago. But how, I asked, how are you alive? His ravaged face took on a serious expression. I can explain, he said, but to do this, I need to tell the story of another man. This man was born a slave many thousands of years ago, and as a slave he had no name. To his master he was nothing. He was there merely to work and to serve. He grew up in the spreading shadow of the great tomb as it rose high above the slave's encampment. The dust thrown up by this construction lined his mouth and half-blinded him. He scrabbled to feed on grain thrown out at the end of the day by the soldiers who kept order. And all the while the tomb soared as more and more blocks were added to its majesty. He grew as well all senior in dust cake skin and sleeping in fits and starts and then being woken to work again to build the tomb day after day. He was one of thousands of slaves condemned to live this way. Some didn't survive and their bodies were left where they fell. You would not mourn an ant, so why fret over a slave? This is how their master felt the great king, whose tomb they were preparing. Unlike his slaves, when he died, an entire nation was forced to weep at spear-pointed necessary. A special fate was reserved for the slaves. They were lined up and marched into the tomb and left in the vast chamber below their master's resting place. And when the tomb was closed, they were sealed in with the dead king. Confusion rippled through the slaves at first as they stood pressed together in the darkness. And then fear and panic possessed them as they realized they were trapped. They began to struggle to try and escape but the tomb that had become their prison did not yield. But still, they struggled, they fought, they scrambled one over the other. The weaker were crushed underfoot, 
The stronger killed each other with their bare hands. Soon, hunger and thirst ravaged those still left alive. One man among them decided on a desperate course of action to try and stave off the pain of starvation. He could think of no other way. He knelt over the body of another slave and he began to eat. And this man, the slave who was born nameless in the rising shadow of the tomb, had survived. I had listened breathlessly as Andrews had shared this tale. A storm of questions span around me and I asked, How do you know this? Did the man finally escape? And you found a written record of his ordeal. Andrew shook his head. No, he said. He stayed within the tomb where he remains to this day. His gaze had drifted past me to something behind me. With a mounting sense of dread, I turned around slowly to see a creature from a nightmare, a creature from which the flesh had withered away, leaving slivers of it hanging off bone, a creature which stooped and dragged the gristle-lined bones off its feet across the chamber floor as it made its way slowly towards us. My stomach cramped and I came close to vomiting. What is it? I asked, struggling not to even speak. The slave of the man, Andrews replied. Before he bit down on the still warm flesh of his fellow slave, he begged the spirit of the dead king for mercy. He told the king that if he survived because of this abhorrent act, he would never leave. He would be his servant for all of eternity. Andrews reached out and took the hand of the creature in his own, looking into the shadows that were all that was left of the creature's eyes and then continued. I do not understand the forces at play here, but they are real. He survived. He lived off the bodies of the other slaves as the ages passed. The tomb itself was being dismantled by ignorant people who wanted to use its dirty blocks elsewhere. So he retreated further and further into its depths, always feeding and always living on. And when he had stripped the flesh from the last of the slaves that had been trapped with him, he fed on those fools that broke into the tomb hoping to steal its treasures. It was their screams, the screams of unwitting tomb robbers that my unfortunate colleague Taylor heard that night. When on the following morning we ventured down into the underground chamber of the tomb, I became separated from the others slowed by my damaged leg. I was lost and scared when many hours later, I stumbled across the bodies of Taylor, Jensen, and Mitchell. They were not alone. Hugh was standing over them diminished by the long periods where he had no bodies on which to feed but still magnificent. And he told me that I did not have to share their fate. He gave me a choice, the same choice that I'm giving you. Open your heart to an ancient secret and become a companion. Linger here in the eternal darkness. Join me. Join us. His invitation hanging in the air between us, Andrews, affixed me with his gaze. Join us, he said again. Join us, the creature echoed. As it spoke, Andrews moved away into the darkness and returned a moment later, dragging two prone forms behind him. I began to cry. It was James and Allison, their throats gashed open and blood lay like a scarlet shroud over their bodies. Andrews dropped them on the ground, looked up at me and said, Feed on them as I fed on Taylor, Jensen, and Mitchell. Eat and join us. Afterwards, while I sat slumped on the ground, nauseated and feverish with a self-disguised, they looked at me contently, Andrews and the creature, 
and then they closed their eyes and went to sleep. They thought that the bargain was sealed and that they had a new companion, but they were wrong. I had not been seduced by their foul offer. As silently as I could, I crawled away and managed to find my way back to the entrance. I thought many times that I was lost and would never make it out of there, and that they would awake and drag me back down into their pit of dark depravity. Eventually, though, I made it. I emerged out into the night, the desert vast and empty around me, and I told myself over and over again that I did what I did to survive. But as I stumbled away, I knew no matter how far I fled, I would never escape the memory of what I had done, that the taste of human flesh would be with me always. There's a forest that appears just beyond the borders of my town every few centuries, written by a weird Bryce guy. We had planned on going to a massive amusement park just outside of town, a fun little trip to celebrate Tim and Jasmine's recent engagement. But the old gas station attendant's words, his cryptic warning, were oddly enticing. And we decided to instead explore the allegedly mystical place. The mirage-like forest of Olenever. Beware the ephemeral forest of Olenever. From the black boughs of its titan trees appear down imps and incubi of madness. While demonian insects, invisible to the eyes of mortal men, cling to its glass-armored bowls. The frost-draped ruins and relics of an ancient and unremembered kingdom to which it owes its name, can be found in crumbled and half-sunken states throughout, though the portals and recesses that remain may harbor more than shadow and dust. Tread not upon the time-resistant flagstones, enter not the lightless halls, with their stagnant air of countless cycles, rest not beneath teetering porticos, stand not upon the perilously slanting balconies, there is more than the danger of ruin amidst the aged and derelict structures. More than a weird cold haunts that fleeting region, which only appears but briefly every few centuries to the north of town, northeast of this very gas station. For what seemed like miles in every direction, there was only the weird crystalline coating over everything. Not a single blade of grass had been spared at the blasting of the oddly bluish glaze. No petal remained unburdened by the semi-transparent and frost-like calcification. The ground where it was traversable was slick, and we had to carefully mount certain structures or briefly slide down others. The air even seemed thick with crystals. The atmosphere, somehow both humidly stuffy and cold, glittered softly in the ever-present light. There was no sun or moon that we could have seen above the glazed canopy of trees, and yet there was light. There weren't any of the unusual smells that you would normally find in the woods or forest. There was only the paradoxically muggy and chilled air. Finally, after what had seemed like hours of careful walking, climbing, and mantling, we came upon a courtyard, or what would have been a courtyard in some former pre-ruined time. But now it was glazed over, lustrous but in an eerie almost a dismal way. There was a fairly large stone gazebo in the center, 
and while I'm sure that it'd probably look nice, perhaps even elegant in some earlier state, in that moment it looked cruelly structured, covered as it was with sheets of crystal glaze. Stalactites of varying lengths hung at random from the edges of its dome ceiling, and a high-backed chair proportioned for a figure much larger than that of a human sat within its seat empty. The stonework of both the gazebo and the flagstones of the courtyard were impressive, had been laid with immaculate care, and yet intermittently throughout, clusters of crystals had forcibly peeked through like invasive weeds. It was a depressing scene, to see such antique beauty so totally overtaken by the strange growth. Tim and Jasmine had been rendered speechless by the darkly fantastical forest, sometime earlier in our unforeseen track. But now, seeing the first sign of civilization, albeit ancient, they both spoke up. Tim wondered aloud at the origin of the structure, while Jasmine directly asked me if I recognized the historical handiwork. I had casually studied a few ancient civilizations but didn't recognize the architecture, couldn't place it within any specific culture. The columns supporting the gazebo's hexagonal roof were thick, and broadly petaled vines had been sculpted around them, giving the appearance of the pillars being naturally overgrown. The crystal glaze had simply been an unforeseen step further in this design. The structure's builders had been master craftsmen, artisans, and it pained me to see their work so horribly defaced. Despite the craftsmanship and the decor of the gazebo, the chair, which was fairly simple, plain in its construction and design, you would have thought it had been placed there by someone, if it weren't for the fact that it was clearly cemented to the gazebo's floor, and not by the glaze either, which had somehow been kept from the gazebo's interior. The chair was a fundamental fixture of the overall structure. Even though we had taken great pains to avoid direct or at least sustained contact with anything in the forest, Tim had entered the gazebo and sat down in the chair. For a moment, no one said anything, and then Tim, after exhaling, said that he felt fine and that the chair was, despite its appearance, fairly comfortable. We had been walking for a while, so I assumed the comfort he found was owed more to basic physical relief than the rigid seat itself. We waited around for a while, unsure of what to do, while outside the courtyard the ostensibly lifeless forest carried on a funereal ambience of soft winds and trembling crystals. Eventually, Tim got up and motioned for Jasmine to have a seat, and she did so eagerly, despite her earlier aversion to coming anywhere into the structure. I leaned up against the gazebo's railing, careful to not let my bare arms come into contact with its glazed shell. Jasmine settled into the chair as best as she could, and tossed her head back. When her eyes met the ceiling, she went rigid, and her mouth dropped open. My gaze followed hers, and Tim presumably did as well, because he softly said, Oh crap. Hanging from the ceiling of the gazebo, extending waist down from the stonework, was some kind of knight, inhumanly broad-shouldered, armored from head to waist in black iron and in his gloved hands, frozen mid-draw, was a massive bow aimed directly at the seat, at Jasmine. The figure's head was covered by a helmet, but through the faceplate, its eyes could be seen, 
spectrally radiant with a crimson luster. Viewed from an angle, I could see the light of eyes through the thin slit in the faceplate, but from Jasmine's position, she saw them full on, and was thus transfixed by them. And Tim and I weren't made aware that she had been trying to move until we saw her temple become damp with sweat, despite the considerable chill that pervaded the courtyard. Tim rushed over, shouting Jasmine's name, and I scrambled to find something. A dislodged stone or box or some other weighty object, for a reason my mind didn't immediately make me aware of, until I saw Tim fail to remove Jasmine from the seat. And then, putting two and two together, my eyes flashed to the bow, to the deadly stone arrow knocked therein, and to the drawstring that was threateningly taut. I knew then that the arrow would be loosed, that its baseball-sized head would find a target at the top of Jasmine's skull. I then took in the full scene, the debris beneath the chair, which I had initially regarded as mere dust, fallen from the ceiling through the countless cycles. By now, with my mind finally comprehending, I realized that the dust had most likely come from someone, that it was probably the time-molded remains of the chair's previous occupant. Things happened very fast after that. Tim, who had been my best friend for years, proved himself to be not just a great friend, but a great fiancé as well. He unshouldered his pack and handed it to me, telling me as he did so that I would need the food and water to make it back, that I would make it back, and that he was thankful for all the time we had spent together over the years. And then before I could argue, he stepped in front of the ceiling-hung archer and looked directly into its smoldering eyes. And just as Jasmine had been, he was immediately frozen in place by the spectral and medusian gaze of the archer. What I hadn't expected was for Jasmine to be released from the spell. I don't think Tim had either. I think he had planned on dying with Jasmine, because it was plainly obvious that the power of the massive bow would send its stone arrow clear through him. The intent behind his self-sacrifice had been to somewhat lessen Jasmine's own terror by allowing her to at least die with someone else, with the one that she loved. But now with her being released, Tim would die alone. Once freed, Jasmine quickly leapt up from the sea to rise closed. She would have run right into the rim of the gazebo in her panicked flight if I hadn't steered her clear of it at the last moment. Cradling her, I tried to think of something to say, of any words I could offer that would ease her mounting grief and panic. But I couldn't think of anything, and instead led her away from the gazebo and her immobilized fiancé. Just when I had sat her down on the edge of a nearby crumbling fountain, in the middle of which was a sculpture of a massive, unnameable spider-like creature, I heard a sound, soft though profound in its dire suggestion. Turning around, my eyes immediately went to the archer, and my heart plummeted into my stomach at what I saw. The arrow had been loosed from the great bow, and it was traveling downward at an impossibly slow speed toward Tim's upraised head. And tears swallowed my eyes at realizing that the stone arrow would strike at the very center of his forehead. I ran over to him knowing that there was nothing I could do but wanting to try anyway, and upon drawing nearer I saw the terror mounting in his eyes, straining his frozen face. 
he was still sentient and still aware. In the sight of that fearsome arrow, suspended by some dark magic in the air before him, must have been absolutely terrifying. I was literally able to track the arrow's flight. It was moving so slowly, perhaps a fourth of an inch every few seconds. Against my nerves, I reached out and grabbed the arrow shaft. And while there was no pain or discomfort from the contact, the sensation was nonetheless unsettling. Feeling my hand being guided along by the gravity-defying arrow. Assuming that there would be no harm in trying, I gripped the shaft tightly and tried to stop its progress, but it continued on despite my efforts. Next, I tried to alter its path, to shove it in one direction and when that failed to produce results, pull it the other way, but I was either too weak or the arrow's flight path was simply unalterable, had maybe been predestined to strike true. Finally accepting the futility of my efforts, I let go of the arrow and resumed my previous search for something to intercept the arrow with, while ignoring the thoughts in my head that arose in regards to the arrow's preternaturally persistent momentum and kinetic energy, which, the disheartening voices said, would surely allow it to push or even pass through anything I put before it. I found a single object, a flagstone that had been dislodged in some geologic event probably centuries before our arrival. It was heavy, surprisingly so, and I had to awkwardly waddle with it against my stomach, costing myself valuable time. Jasmine looked on, with a despairing confusion in her eyes, not yet understanding what I had intended to do. When I reached him, I hoisted the stone above me while crouching in front of him. The weight of it, which had to have at least been 50 or 60 pounds, quickly became more than a little burdensome by the awkward position in which I had to hold it. But the arrow was close. Two or three inches away and I couldn't move. I could only brace myself for the impact and hope that it could counteract the force of the huge projectile without tottering or dropping the stone. I tried not to think of how much of a morbidly ironic twist of fate it would be if the arrow was embedded in the stone, but sent it falling right into Tim's face. When the arrow struck, I felt my arms immediately overcome by the sheer force of it. It wasn't fast, but it was unfightable. The arrow had simply continued its deadly descent, as if there weren't a stone slab in its way. Since I had been facing away from him when I had raised the stone, I couldn't see Tim's face and I found myself thankful for that. I knew that I wouldn't be able to bear the sight of his eyes, filled with an unrelatable terror at seeing his imminent death now promising to be even grislier. And to have your face slowly crushed by a slab of concrete, your head gradually pushed back until your neck snapped. Weirdly, terribly, I couldn't simply drop the stone. I tried to release it, hoping that the arrow now was embedded in its surface, and I could let gravity take them both, save Tim's life, and end this particular aspect of the nightmare. But when I released the slab, it simply moved along with the arrow. It was carried along with the same unstoppable momentum and glacial slowness. I stepped back to judge the angling slab. Desperately, I tried to move him, hoping against hope that Jasmine's rigid immovability had been tied more so to the chair than her person. 
But despite my greatest efforts, Tim wouldn't budge. He'd be firmly planted where he stood, and I couldn't move his body an inch in any direction. I heard Jasmine let out a low, anguished moan behind me, and turning around, I saw her staring with her eyes, pouring out tears. She had been watching my efforts the whole time and had come to accept the inevitability of her fiancé's death. I couldn't think of anything else to do. Couldn't come up with a new plan or even some last-ditch effort. Going back to Tim, I wrapped my arms around him and gave him the tightest hug that I could. And I thanked him for having been such a great friend to me. I watched as new tears gathered in his eyes and then released him. The stone and its arrow propellant were only two inches away from his face now. Not wanting Jasmine to witness Tim's assuredly violent and woefully unpreventable death, I helped her up and led her away from the courtyard. As we walked on and deeper into the crystalline forest, I found myself growing increasingly unsettled by the quietness of it all. I thought to myself that I would have probably preferred to hear some evidence of Tim's demise, one final exclamation of life from him, rather than the ceaselessly and dismal ambience of the forest. Jasmine remained mostly silent, the only sound she made being an occasional whimper or sigh when a new obstacle interrupted or diverted our progress. After twenty minutes or so, we came to the edge of the forest where the vegetation wasn't so thickly covered in the translucent wax, and where the regular, untouched, natural world was visibly beyond the misty horizon. We were both tired and I knew that Jasmine, having witnessed her fiancé's final moments and had been forced to abandon him, needed rest as soon as possible. I told her to take my arm and close her eyes and, mustering up all my might, pushed into the densely accumulated mist. Just as I had done before, I focused on ignoring the alluring whispers that called for me to let go and to submit myself woefully and wholly to these specters hidden amidst the mist. It had been easier with the three of us. We had talked to each other to take our minds off of the hounding spirits. I saw them flit about, dancing and cavorting before me, attempting to get me to drop my guard. I squeezed Jasmine's hand a little tighter, but not enough to where the sensation would be cause for alarm. I just wanted to reassure her that everything was alright, and reassure myself that I wasn't alone with these sorcerous phantoms. I knew that if I were to heed their charms that I'd be lost forever, that my spirit or consciousness would be doomed to join them in their eternal trapeze through the mist-laden field. That fact alone was panic-inducing, but not entirely disagreeable. I hadn't anything of real value to go back to in the real world beyond the mundaneity of my regular life. But a life of eternal immateriality and thoughtless gaiety, however strange, wouldn't necessarily be any worse. But I had Jasmine to take care of, and knew that if I were to let go, she would soon follow. So shutting my mind against the ghastly voices and the ghostly figures, I pushed on, and eventually cleared the mast. I took Jasmine home and wasn't sure if I should leave her alone or stay, but she broke our funereal silence and asked me to spend the night. I agreed and settled myself on the living room couch, where Tim and I had spent countless hours playing couch co-op video games. Unsurprisingly, 
Jasmine went to bed almost immediately after she had taken a shower, sitting awake on the couch. With its silence and the colossal weight of my failure finally hitting me, I knew that I wouldn't be able to sleep. The hours crawled by and I eventually decided that I needed to be sure. Needed to know that Tim was dead and that the arrow had flown its lethal course. There was still a few hours until sunrise and I was confident that I could make it there and back again within that window. After checking on Jasmine, who I found still firmly asleep, I put on my boots and I headed out. It wasn't hard to find the mist-enshrouded field on the edge of town. And despite the fears that had arisen during the trip there, I managed to push through the ghost-haunted fog with ease. I thought that I would have to fight off the voices even harder, but having gone through twice before, I found it much easier to dispel their clawing whispers from my mind. Again reaching the forest, I headed in the direction of that ancient courtyard, the location of which I had unconsciously memorized, perhaps always knowing that I would need to return, to be sure. After maybe 20 minutes of trudging through crystal-encased bushes and crunching over the frosted grass, with that ominous light above and around me, I finally reached the dilapidated courtyard with its crumbling, dry, entirely empty fountain and that death trap gazebo. I kept my eyes fixed to the flagstones as I approached, not wanting to prematurely see any grisly details. I wanted to take it in all at once, to commit it to my memory so that I could accept and hopefully someday move past the full macabre burden of my failure. But upon reaching the gazebo, I was shocked, though not appalled or horrified. Its interior was empty. There was no sign of Tim or the arrow that I was certain had entered if not carried away his skull. There was only the dust in the floor, the same dust that I had noticed earlier. Nothing had been added to the pile. Above me, the blackly armored knight stared down smolderingly, its bowstring in an infinitely slow process of recoil, the shielded eyes still alight with some inner animacy. I looked around, leaving the gazebo and peering into the perimeter surrounding the courtyard, but found no evidence of Tim's escape or death. There was only the dismal, ruined courtyard of some bygone era, the glazed leafage the disconcerting ambience and the ethereal light. I returned to Jasmine's house just before sunrise. She was still asleep and hadn't woken up in my absence. On the way there, I had promised myself that I wouldn't tell her about Tim's mysterious absence from the courtyard, and upon peeking into her bedroom and seeing her peacefully resting face, I knew with full certainty that I couldn't. I couldn't inspire the hope that he was somehow alive, that mystical forest could contain any number of horrors and just because I hadn't been able to move him didn't mean that something else couldn't have. Something possessing monstrous strength. I sank into the couch exhausted but unsleeping and waited for the slow crawl of the sun in the sky. When the soft morning light had filtered into the room, I felt a sudden lethargy fall over me. I remember the terribly prophetic words of the questionably old gas station clerk, that strange man who had told us about the fleetingly existent forest, and knew that with the sun's arrival came the forest destruction, or relocation to some other sphere of time and space. And not just that, but Tim's own spatial transition as well, 
With this grim fact in mind, I was finally able to accept the circumstances, to let go of all hope and for the moment rest. But it wasn't until I had started to put together this document that I remembered being aware, yet not consciously taking notice, of the curiously empty fountain. The fountain that had once contained what I had been sure was merely a grotesque a sculpture of huge and vaguely arachnid creature. The FBI Man, written by Corner Cornea. For months, I had been noticing something different about my feeds, be it for shopping, ads, or mindless browsing. It reminded me of that running joke about the FBI Man and how everyone is assigned to someone that monitored everything we did online. If I needed to refill my shampoo, I would get a notice or a coupon for it. I figured it was the algorithm putting in work, but that didn't stop me from saying out loud, thanks FBI man. Once I was leaving for a trip, and on the news I read about a series of muggings in that area, so I had packed pepper spray. It wasn't three days into the trip before I had to use it while walking alone to the elevator. Thanks, FBI man. For all the benefits, it was disturbing that someone might actually be watching me. So I used tab stickies to cover my devices. Even got a sliding case for the camera on my phone. It would get annoying, especially when I was talking to a friend about something completely out of pocket. Only to find it later on my news app, or as an ad on the top of some screen. There were a lot of instances that scared me, but the one that sticks out the most was when I started seeing baby products in my feed, and it was everywhere too. I didn't think that I was pregnant, but out of fear I suddenly stopped drinking. A couple of days later, I mustered up the courage and I took a test. Thanks, FBI man. I was starting to feel disassociated as the details started growing finer and more precise as time went by. I was learning, anticipating things that I wanted or needed even before I knew about them. Well, last month my husband and I started looking at houses. After a grueling battle with the market, we were finally going to close in two more weeks. All the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. I was sitting on the couch online shopping. When I noticed all the Bibles and holy water for sale, freaked out, I pulled up my newsfeed and the headlines all seemed to be screaming at me. Get out. This summer's best hairstyles. Don't move. A look at housing market fluctuations. Stay put with these new hairsprays. I closed everything and decided to turn on the TV and the first thing that plays is The Exorcist. That night I told my husband to cancel the contract. We would lose the goodwill faith money that he argued, but I didn't care. We didn't end up buying that house. But a few weeks later I see it on the news. I recognize the yellow trim and the pink garage door. A newlywed couple inside had been mysteriously murdered. Thanks, FBI man. My phone had died while driving to a vacation rental in the mountains. 
so we used my husband's for a navigation. We got to a stretch where all the land started closing into one. The roads became narrow, rumble strips aligned either side, and oncoming cars shook our cabin with each passing, and the edge of the mountain loomed around every tight corner. We had been driving for a while when I noticed that vehicles had slowly stopped coming from the other side. At first I thought, what a waste of extra road. As traffic began to bog in this one lane that turned into, um, why is no one coming towards us? By the time that I started keeping count, it had been nearly 30 minutes without another oncoming car. Let me see your phone. I told my husband, I need to look something up. I used his browser to look at our current route. Nothing definitive showed up, no signs of traffic or an accident. Not even a previous news article. Nothing useful. The GPS came through the speakers. Make a left turn in 26 miles. This is still the fastest route. My stomach lurched when we turned a hefty corner and came to a dead stop. A line of cars ran up the mountain. It looked as if it continued past the turn. Uh, they must be doing construction or maybe there's a rock slide up ahead. My husband chirped. I started flipping through his news app. Social media, I went back to the browser. I checked his junk mail, nothing. But I could feel that something wasn't right. So I went back into the browsers and started typing things that I would search for. Angola rabbits. Warning tread and road called. Melatonin pills. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? I did this to several platforms until something caught my eye. A news article read, Radio isn't dead. Look at what they're doing. Immediately, I turned on the radio and started scanning through the channels. Static, static, static. Turn around. Every now and then, I get a little bit lonely. And you're never coming around. Turn around. I made him get us off that mountain that day. He complained about losing the deposit for the rental, but I didn't care. Several days later, we see on the news that a landslide had killed nearly 40 people waiting on that mountain pass. Thanks, FBI man. How did you know? My husband had asked me. Which? He murmured. My husband never thanks his FBI man. In our relationship, he definitely has FBI man too. A subpar version. Perhaps due to a low rating. There could be an invisible score of priority and importance per individual. A federal score that could be used to determine how long someone is put on hold. Or how often they're stopped at a traffic light. Simple basic involvement that influences what you see and when you see it. If you even see it at all. I don't believe in guardian angels, but I believe in FBI man. Hey, look, there's an event at the park downtown. My husband scratches his stomach. Where? I, I didn't see that one. It's on the front page of the local news app. Oh, I don't even have that thing downloaded. Did you want to go? I asked. I've been reading about how terrible outdoor events are. Honestly, have you seen all the articles? I shook my head. 
No, I've mostly been reading about this stock. Well, those things are never accurate, he told me. Well, I'm going to go. What, right now? Yeah, it's in only an hour. Alright, have fun. He turned back to the TV to watch his game. When I eventually arrived at the event, there was a perfect parking spot open. I pulled in my car and then walked down a Chavez Square. There was no music, but the ambient noises reminded me of the lo-fi that I enjoyed listening to while working. I walked toward the center where people were gathered and some were dancing openly, swaying back and forth on their feet. It looked like fun as I watched them, imagining each one with their own music to how they moved. Everyone seemed peaceful until the woman came storming toward the center of the square. Her face was a beet red and her clothes were disheveled. It looked as if she hadn't slept in days. Most people stopped doing what they had been and turned around to watch her. We were mostly quiet as she began yelling at the top of her lungs. If you keep following it, it'll be your death. All of you. You don't know what the heck it is. And you don't know what it's doing. Uh, are you okay? The woman rounded on the other woman. Are you listening? Stop. Stop doing its bidding. I hope she's alright. A couple near me said to each other. One of the vendors approached her gently and offered her some water. It looked as if they were trying to usher her away from the crowd. The woman pushed him away. Freaking listen. We should just ignore her. Yeah. The murmurs echoed through the crowd. A few people even went back to dancing and there were children laughing again. No, listen. The woman tore her backpack off and pulled out a large, fatigued jerry can. She popped open the cap and doused herself. Wait, I hear someone shout, but it was too late. The woman flicked a match and then dropped it at her feet. She went up in flames. I rushed forward to help her. I had taken off my jacket and I was trying to smother the fire, but it was just too much. I kept screaming, Help! Someone call the fire department! Help! I looked around and saw everyone standing around me. Their faces dug into their phone. A few people were asking how to put out a fire. What's the most effective way, Alexa? Alexa? I think you're supposed to leave her alone. It looks like a demonstration and they don't want to be interrupted. At least that's what the articles say. It says we shouldn't do anything. The victim might sue us. Bewildered, I panned the crowd. What the heck were any of these people talking about? Why wasn't anybody trying to help? I ran toward a food truck and asked if they had a fire extinguisher, and the cook from behind apologized. Sorry, we only use electrical components, so we only house a Class C. By the time the fire was put out, the woman was burnt to a crisp. Her face was charcoaled and the split flash revealed the deep red-cooked human meat beneath. I looked at the crowd of people looking at their phones. Hey, it says there's a free yoga class nearby and a meditation clinic that just opened. It says the second person is free. I shook my head and looked down at my phone. The first thing that pops up in feed were the loyalty points that I had on my frequent flyers card. It said zero. 
Several days after I returned home, I realized my husband was starting to act funny. He would stare at me in the hallways as we passed each other, his face serious each time, his head turning as he looked at me, and not in the way that made me feel desirable. I've never been to prison, but I imagine it was similar to two inmates crossing paths between cells. The days turned to weeks and we started talking less and less. The text messages that I had so often received in the morning stopped coming. We hadn't even sat down for dinner together in quite some time. But the hair that broke the camel's back was when I saw him make coffee early in the morning. I then went upstairs to take a shower. And when I had finished getting ready for work, I get into the kitchen to see him pour a mug full and then proceed to dump out the rest of the perfectly brewed pot. That night, I snuck into our room. I had his phone in my hand and I started scrolling through his feed. Are you feeling underappreciated? A billionaire's wife took half when they divorced. Click here now to find out how to prevent that. Axes and knives, axes and knives for sale. Why severing the neck was effective. I look into the history of the guillotine. What you doing? I nearly dropped his phone on the ground. Oh, just checking the weather for tomorrow. I couldn't find my phone and I didn't want to go downstairs to look for it. I had just finished doing my hair and it was wet. It's real cold downstairs during this time of the year still. It's almost summer, but you wouldn't think it right. Hey, how are you? How was your day? I feel like we haven't talked in a while. My work was alright and I've been doing alright. He pulled on an axe from behind his back. I got really into axes recently. Picked this one up online, it's a great deal. He turned the blade towards me. So yeah, what were you doing? Looking through my phone? What? Well, yeah, a bit. I tried to smile. Making sure that no hot girls at work are trying to steal my man. I joked. He smiled. Oh yeah, is that what you're worried about, huh? Maybe I should check your phone cell, that way we'd be even. Sure thing. I smiled at him. We just have to go find it. My husband reached into his pocket and pulled out my phone. Oh, it's okay, I've already got it. I could feel my lip quivering. That's great, you can... I already looked through it. He dropped the axe and let the end splinter the wood floor. He pulled up the screen and shows me a text from an unknown number. Who's this and why can't he wait to see you again? What? I don't know. I don't even recognize that number. No, didn't want to save him on your phone, did you? He swung the axe at me. I ducked and fell into the bed. I rolled, trying to get to the other side, but he grabbed me by the leg. Let me go, I screamed. He pulled me toward him and left the axe in the air. I move under his arm and he slices the bed through. I run for the door and I can hear him pulling it out of the spring mattress. The twirled metal singing as it detached from the axe end. I ran for the stairs, feeling the air swishing behind me as he misses another swing. I get to the top of the flight and feel him charging into me. We both tumble down. I hit my head on the railing and I can see blood dripping off my face. We hit the bottom of the stairs hard. My husband had landed face down and he wasn't moving. I turned him over and the axe had split his chest open. When the police arrived, they looked at me. They had a lot of questions. One of them kept muttering under his breath. 
It doesn't look like self-defense to me. I looked around the room and saw the different personnel in front of me. They were all staring at me as if I had done something wrong. I could see another officer playing with his handcuffs, twirling them as he waited by the front door. I grabbed my phone from the floor and started typing into the search bar. How to ask for forgiveness, how to repent, how to say sorry. Nothing helpful in the articles and nothing in my news app. No notifications and nothing. I finally opened up a new text window and typed, Sorry FBI man. And then I closed it without pressing send. Hey, that's evidence. One of the officers yelled at me. He snatched my phone away with his blue rubbered hands and put it into a bag. The lead detective approached me and said, Ma'am, we're going to need you to come down to the station with us. Am I a suspect? Everybody's a suspect. One of the officers handcuffed me. Is this necessary? A standard procedure. I shook my head. I want a lawyer. I was taken down to the station and they put me into a waiting room. I was handcuffed to the table for about three or four hours before a man in a navy blue suit walked in. He put his briefcase on the table and introduced himself as a pro bono lawyer who wanted to clear up a misunderstanding. The officers were instructed to take off my cuffs and I was brought coffee and food. My new lawyer told me that all the charges would be dropped and that I was free to go. He even handed me my phone back. Ever since that day, whenever I'm unsure of what to do, I look it up. I scroll through my feeds and apps until I see what I'm looking for. And then I do what it says. And things have turned out pretty good for me. I even got a new job that paid for me to move. Thanks, FBI man. I worked the night watch. I saw something horrifying on the security camera. Written by Horror Writer 1717. The mournful wail of a distant fire whistle. That's my only company tonight. The moon is nearly full and so bright that I barely need my flashlight to do my outside rounds. The building is large and old. The corrugated metal shows scars of rust and decay. During the day, it's a bustling warehouse, full of comings and goings. At nighttime, it becomes like a tomb where every footfall echoes back to me. Every night, I do my rounds out of habit and obligation. However, in the seven years that I've worked here, nothing has ever happened. So far, tonight's no exception. I sit outside of my guard shack each night for the first couple of hours. And then after I do my first round, I unlock the warehouse, go inside, and use the small, dingy bathroom. This is my routine. The warehouse is sparsely lit with only the exit signs and the occasional emergency light to stave off total darkness. Inside the bathroom, a dull yellow glow from the single bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling is just enough for me to read by. Every night is the same. I come in, turn on the putrid yellow light, take my seat and read my newspaper. The place always makes sounds even when it's empty. The harsh buzzing of the exit light, the scrapes and skitters of unseen creatures, and the creaks and groans of the metal building complaining when the wind tests its resilience. 
The first year that I worked here, it was a toss-up between whether I would have a nervous breakdown or just quit. After a while, I finally decided to stop listening to these small noises and start listening for the big ones. However, six years later, I've never heard any big ones. Until tonight. The warehouse sits on the outskirts of Frost Creek, halfway up the mountain toward Hallett. In other words, halfway between the middle and nowhere. The view is quite beautiful on a clear night. The lights of Frost Creek shine like a Christmas tree, with the mall being the angel on top. It's beautiful and yet I still feel isolated from the rest of humanity. Sometimes that can be a good thing. No one ever really bothers me up here. It's like my own little kingdom. My reverie ends as I return to reality and finish my first round, and I go inside to do my daily business. I'm midway through page two of my newspaper when suddenly three knocks sound on the door. They aren't fast, but slow and methodical. A chill runs up my spine. Thoughts of malevolence and mayhem dance like sugar plums through my head. Fear washes over me like a hard rain. When my mind finally recovers, reason starts to kick in. There's no way anyone should be in here. I've just done around and there was no one. I haven't even heard anyone approach the door. Not even these skitters of the mice and other creatures that make the warehouse their home. It's decision time. How long do I sit here? Do I pretend that I didn't hear it? Did I really hear it? Do I answer as though it's no big deal? Do I yell out and threaten to call the police? My hesitation makes me wonder if they're going to knock again. So I sit and wait, ignoring the pins and needles that are creeping up the sides of my legs. Nothing happens. After two minutes still, nothing has happened. No knock, no sound. Hello? I yell out. No answer. I summon my resolve. This is my job and I have to go do it. I finish my business and give my legs a minute for the blood to start flowing normally again. And then I pull out the flashlight. I turn it on but also in the back of my mind think that it's good to have something in my hand that I can use as a weapon. I reach for the door and turn the knob slowly. And then I open it quickly. I flash my light out into the warehouse, panning around but finding nothing. I lean out and check around both corners. I step into the large room and all I can see is a whole lot of empty. I don't breathe a sigh of relief though. There are many places, dark corners and crevices that someone could hide in. Hello? I call again, hearing the echo return my own voice. I decide to do another round to be sure that no one is here. I go very slowly and methodically, checking all the dark corners under the desks anywhere somebody could hide. My fear rises and falls like a roller coaster as I search, find nothing, sigh, and then move on to the next dark area to search. Each time that I peek around a corner, my fear whispers of unnamed, unimaginable horrors. Every time I find nothing, I breathe a sigh of relief. Only when I startle a rat out of its hiding place do I see anything. I'm not sure who jumped higher, the rat or me. I make my way back to the exit, check my watch and find that I've been searching for an hour. 
Now it's time to go back outside. Fear whispers to me once more, especially when I find the door locked. Why would anybody take the time to relock the door? I abandon the thought, open the door, step outside, and I flash my light around. Nothing. I check the ground for footprints other than my own, but there aren't any. It seems like I'm the only person here. I do another round around the outside of the building anyway, just to be sure. After finding nothing, I go back to my guard shack and I try to walk the tightrope between vigilance and paranoia. Eventually, boredom overwhelms both and I finish the newspaper reading that had been interrupted. The final two rounds of the night produce nothing. Only a pair of glowing eyes in the bushes catch my attention. My light shakes until the rabbit that they belong to hops away from my light. My shift ends uneventfully. I grudgingly chalk up the knocks to my imagination, go home sleep, and the next night come back to work again. I nervously laugh to myself as I walk my first round of the night. I try to pretend that last night's incident was pure imagination, and I continue my routine as normal. Around two hours later, I go inside to the dingy bathroom and sit down to read my paper, glancing at the door as I do. I shake off the notion as nonsense. When I turn to page two, I hear it again. Three knocks. Goose flesh rises over every inch of my body. Exactly the same sound at exactly the same time as last night. I can't deny it or write it off as imagination. It's real. I put my paper down, finish my business, and I run to the door. I whip it open so hard that it bangs off the wall. The bang echoes as I flash the light all around the warehouse. If I catch you, you're going to be sorry. I yell, hoping that it sounds more intimidating than I feel right now. No answer, no sound save the fading echo of the banging door. The lack of sound is quite disturbing. There should be footfalls of someone running toward the exit. There's no way anyone could get from the bathroom to the exit that quickly. This is getting creepy. Again, I do a thorough walkthrough looking for anything out of place, but I find nothing. I do a walk around the building and again come on empty. At this point, I think finding nothing is worse than finding something. At least with something you know you're not going crazy. I go back to my normal routine, but I'm vigilant to the point of paranoia. Anything that moves, even a windblown leaf, has me nearly jumping out of my skin. The rest of the night passes without incident. The next day, I struggle with the desire to call in sick. My curiosity and my sense of duty are the only things that prevent me. I go to work, do my normal routine, go to the bathroom when I usually do. This time though, I just wait inside the closed door. I wait and wait and wait, but nothing happens. I check my watch and it's 15 minutes past when things usually happen. What's different about tonight? Is it over? Is whoever or whatever done playing their infuriating little game? I open the door and nothing's there. I close the door, shrug, go over to the toilet and sit down to do my business. Two minutes later, you guessed it. What's going on? I ask myself with my body as taut as a rubber band. Can they see me? I look all around at the ceiling, the walls, every place. 
I see no place anywhere that a camera could be hidden. Why would anybody want to do that anyway? I have to make another decision. Do I jump up and try to catch them again or do I just ignore it? I choose to ignore it. And again, my nerves are on edge. Nothing else happens the rest of the night. Home, bed, try to sleep. Unexpected a bright idea. I come in early for my shift and I speak to the supervisor. I tell him that I had a feeling that someone had been messing around because I had been hearing noises on my rounds. I tell them that I'd like the company to purchase a few motion detector cameras to set up inside. He hesitates for a moment but then he agrees. When my shift rolls around, I do everything the same and I hear it again. I ignore it. Two days later, I come in early to watch the crew install the cameras. They set up two outside and two inside. When they set up the inside cameras, I suggested to the worker where to aim the one near the bathroom. But there's nothing over there, only one small room in the corner, he says. Trust me, that's where I've been hearing the sounds. He rolls his eyes and aims the camera as I direct. After everything is set up, they give me an iPad and show me how to use it to view the cameras and to zoom up close. When I start my shift, I have a bounce in my step and a song in my heart. I know that this is the night that I find out the truth. I can hardly wait for my first round. I watch the clock and it's finally time. I hide the iPad inside my newspaper just in case whoever can see me, and I went for my first round. I finish up and I head for the bathroom. I sit on the toilet and I pull out the iPad, and I check the cameras. They all work fine. I zoom up on each one, leave the bathroom camera view on and wait. Three knocks. I look down to the screen but it's blank. All I see is static and then it suddenly clears up. No, I say, frantically tapping the rewind button. The video rolls back and I play it again. No static. Camera working perfectly. And then static for six seconds and then back to normal view. It can't be, I say, shaking my head. I rewind again and go back to watching all four cameras at once. Only the bathroom camera went to static. I rewind again, paying close attention to the time when the static had appeared. And then I watch each of the cameras during that time period and see nothing out of the ordinary. None of them show static either. I lean back against the toilet too frustrated to be as terrified as I should be. I try several more times to rewind and catch something, anything on the video. Nothing. I have no idea what to do. My disappointment is so profound that I sit there unthinking and unmoving. I don't know how long I've been sitting here, but my legs are numb. I set the iPad down and I try to get up. Pins and needles run up and down my legs as the blood begins to circulate. I limp over to the door and reach for the doorknob. And that's when realization crashes in on me and my hand starts shaking. All I can do is stand here and think. The more I do, the more I remember. Every other night after the knocking, there was nothing there. That doesn't comfort me much, but it gives me enough courage to turn the doorknob and step out into the darkness. I'm not sure what I'm expecting to see when I step through the doorway. 
Perhaps some unholy creature too evil for my deepest and darkest nightmares waiting to swallow me up. But all I behold is an empty warehouse. The warehouse looks the same as it has every other night. I step through the door, whipping my light back and forth. Nothing's here, I whisper, causing the words to faintly echo back to me. I walk cautiously back to my guard shack, sit and tremble as I watch the video over and over. There's nothing to see. I tell myself not sure if that's what I want to hear. Right before the knock, the camera goes blank with static. Right after the knock, it clears up. Something was there, I said to no one, but it wasn't something of this world. It takes every ounce of will to step out of the guard shack and to do my next rounds. When I go home that morning, I can't sleep. All I keep thinking about is that incessant knocking. When I get ready for my next shift, it's a bitter struggle to come to work and not call off sick. In the end, I just have to know what's going on. Am I going crazy? Is somebody messing with me? I can't imagine anyone taking it this far. I go to work and do everything exactly like the previous night. After my first round, I go to the bathroom, sit down and watch the camera, see the static. The blood drains from my face as I hear the three knocks. So, here I sit, and now I know it's not a fluke. Something unseen interfered with the camera. No matter how many times I watch the video, there's nothing there. I finish my round on autopilot. My mind is shut down and my body is taken over, going through the same motions that I have for the past seven years. I'm in a state beyond petrified. It's like I'm in a walking coma. I can only do my routine. That's my only defense against madness. I sit in the guard shack and stare straight ahead for four hours until my shift is over. What do you do when you come face to face with the supernatural? When you come face to face with the brutal realization that your existence has been interacted with by something else. Something you can't explain or see. Something that terrifies you. What do you do? I think about it all through the day. Sleep is impossible. All that remains is one last test. I don't want to, but if I don't try, I'll go through the rest of my life wondering. I go to work, do my normal routine, take my break and wait. I watch the screen, see the static and hear the knocks. Come in, I said. The doorknob slowly turns and the door inches open. A mist creeps into the room followed by an overwhelming stench. I'm frozen with fear as a massive putrid claw with three fingers on it grabs the door and pushes it open. I don't have the words to describe the abomination that's before me. My mind mercifully shuts down, plunging me into darkness. I open my eyes to an empty room. Strangely, everything is on its side. I lifted my head off the floor to reorient myself and try to get up but immediately fall back down. I look and my pants are bunched up at my ankles. I pull up my pants and I rise. My eyes dart around the room searching for the hideous beast that had opened the door. I find nothing out of the ordinary. That glance at my watch shows that 30 minutes had passed. Was it a dream? Did my overactive imagination take me for a ride? I pick the iPad up off the floor and rewind through the videos. When I reach the most recent one, I press play.
As usual, there's an image of the closed door and then the screen goes to static. But this time, the screen remains static for 11 minutes. When the image returns, the door is open. My blood turns to ice as a thought races through my mind like a bullet. Has uttering those two simple words, come in, invited something truly heinous into not only the room, but also my mind. What have I done? Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound, and as always, stay creepy.